So welcome to our left. And as Josh said very clearly and really beautifully, um, if you are a weak person, if you are a broken person, then RUF really is the place for you. Because RUF is a campus ministry with a lot of weaknesses. Um, because I'm a weak person. RUF will let you down. I will let you down. And our aim is to, to know you with all your distinctness and to care for you distinctly. But what that really looks like is pointing you to the person of Jesus who won't let you down, who truly will love you perfectly, who can't fail you. So that brings us to the gospel, the gospel of Mark, which is the message of who Jesus is, who he is, what he has done, is doing, and what he will do. So let's take a look at Mark 8, 27 through 37. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This is God's word. If you're at all a fan of boxing history, you know the name Jake LaMotta. So Jake LaMotta was a fighter in the 1940s, a boxer who was played by Robert De Niro in the movie Raging Bull. And Jake LaMotta was an incredible fighter, but one of the things he's famous for is taking a fall in a fight. And you don't take a fall in a fight. It's just not done. So what happened was he was fighting this guy named Billy Fox in 1943. You all remember it. And, I mean, he was supposed to win the fight, but he went down in the fourth. And unbeknownst to the people watching it, he had made a deal with the mafia that he was going to go down in the fourth round, get knocked out by Billy Fox. But in the first round, he agreed to this because if he went down in the fourth, they would, in the next fight, give him a shot at the title. But in the first round, he was such a tough guy that he accidentally landed too hard of a punch on Billy Fox. And Billy Fox went weak in the knees. And then LaMotta had to kind of carry him all the way through into the fourth round. And then by the fourth, what LaMotta did is he just laid back on the ropes and let Billy Fox punch him as hard as he could. And it became really clear that he was throwing the fight. He was taking a fall in the fight. And this was just outrageous for boxing fans. Because the way that you win is you win. 
But for Lamada, the way to win was to lose. The way to win was to take the fall, because that's how he was going to get his title fight. I mean, it was outrageous, but this is a picture of our immediate response to what is central to the gospel message, the cross. Because the cross tells us that the, the way to get, the way to win is the exact opposite of the way that seems so natural to us. Because the way that seems natural to us, that if you want to win at life, if you want to get, you have to climb the ladder. You have to take the path of what's called upward mobility. Upward mobility, which means that life is basically a ladder that you climb. More success, more fame, more influence, more power, more pleasure, more comfort. If you want to get, you got to get. If you want to win, you win. But Jesus wants us to open our eyes and see that this path of upward mobility is, in the end, really the path to loss. That the real path to gain, to winning, is to lose. And so this is what we need to see tonight from Mark 8. Is that the way to gain is to lose. Or you must lose to gain. You must lose to gain. I want to explain this by just simply walking through the passage and asking three questions as we go. Focus really on Peter, one of Jesus' followers. And the first question is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So look at verse 27. And Jesus asked this very wide scope question to his followers. He says there, who do people say that I am? And in verse 28, they give him the kind of survey answers. There in verse 28, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. So some people have said that John the Baptist, who at this point has been killed, that Jesus is John the Baptist come back to life. And some people say that he is Elijah. So basically he's the return of a prophet, a spokesperson, kind of like Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, or he's he's another kind of prophet. But then Jesus takes this question and he brings it up close and personal. In verse 29, who do you say that I am? What's interesting, a lot of people that have written about the book of Mark and this passage, they say that this is kind of the middle or turning point in the whole book. And the answer that Peter gives is the turning point. But, I mean, this is so important. What, so what seems to be happening is that Mark wants not only for Peter, but for all of us, anyone who is reading this, to see that this question, who is Jesus, is coming at you. This question for you and for me to answer. But Peter answers it correctly. He says there, you are the Christ, which is another word for Messiah. You're the one who has been set apart or chosen to save God's people, to be the king and to establish God's kingdom on earth, to make everything right. And this is good news. If Jesus is the Messiah, that's good news for the whole world. But why in verse 30 then does Jesus strictly charge them not to tell anyone about this answer? Well, it's not because Jesus doesn't want anyone to know. It seems that Jesus charges them, don't tell anyone because, okay, they've they've seen stuff 
that leads them to believe Jesus really is this Messiah guy. I mean, they've seen him heal a paralyzed person. They have seen him calm a storm. They've seen him announce forgiveness for sins. But Jesus has not yet fully demonstrated what it means for him to be the Messiah. He hasn't done the big central thing that will show what that means. It's not yet time for them to look at him and say, yes, you are the Messiah because he hasn't fully given the sign. In a recent Netflix special, a comedian named Seth Meyers, he's talking about his relationship with his long-term girlfriend at one point and now his wife. And he tells a story about how he was planning a vacation for them and they were going to go to Prague not that romantic. But then something happened, which meant that they couldn't go to Prague anymore, so they had to go to Paris. Very romantic. And he was nervous because his long-term girlfriend of many years was expecting that he was going to propose on this trip because they're going to Paris. And at one point, they're on the River Seine, and they're on a gondola, and he drops his phone onto the edge of the boat. And he says that it would have May, I would have rather just kicked my phone into the river than taken a knee to grab my phone. Because at that moment, it would have given the clear signal that he was proposing. And he, in that moment, he's joking, but he wouldn't want to do that, not because he wasn't going to propose ever, but because it wasn't the right moment. And that's kind of like what Jesus is, is doing here. Saying that you haven't seen entirely what it means for me to be the Messiah. Because they've seen a lot of stuff that leads them to believe that Jesus is the one who's going to bring victory. And the message message of the gospel is one of victory. Jesus is the king of the whole world. And he's going to bring his kingdom, which is going to make everything in the world right. But what kind of victory is it? Peter looks at Jesus and he he sees a king, which means conquering. And he sees that Jesus is the one who's bringing the kingdom, which means conquering, win to win, climb the ladder. But Jesus is simply saying, hold back. You don't really know fully yet what it means for me to be king. So here's the question for us. Do you see Jesus clearly? Do you see him clearly? And if we assume that That the way to win, the way to get fullness or wholeness, satisfaction, happiness, is to climb that ladder, get more comfort, security, influence, power, pleasure. Then we will be tempted to just jam Jesus into that framework. That he's the one who basically is just going to help me climb the ladder. Which means then that Jesus just becomes an ally in your pursuit of self-discovery. Or in your, in your pursuit of the best life now. Well, I mean, that's seeing something clearly because Jesus is offering us fullness and wholeness and satisfaction and joy and peace. But if we try to jam Jesus into a narrative of upward mobility, we will miss him. We will misunderstand him. And we won't get to fully experience what he's offering us. So that's the first question. Who is Jesus? leads us to see you must lose to gain. But secondly, let's look at this question. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And Jesus begins to explain what it means that he is the Messiah, and very plainly he explains it. So look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes 
and be killed and after three days rise again. If you're an Old Testament savvy person like Peter is, this is putting off alarm bells. This is a big red flag because Jesus used the phrase son of man, which is Jesus' favorite descriptor for himself. And it's a reference to Daniel 7, where the one who is the Messiah, the one chosen to be king and save God's people, he comes out of the clouds of heaven and he's given dominion over everything. But Jesus has taken that picture and he's combined it with a picture from Isaiah, picture of the suffering servant, the one who would suffer and die for God's people, who would die for their sins and bear their sins. Well, Jesus is combining these to basically say the way that I am bringing my kingdom is to die, to suffer, to be rejected by the leaders of God's people. Then I will rise and that's how I will have victory. And Peter is like, this makes no sense. You're not supposed to put these two things together. And so how does Peter react? Look in verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter here is censoring Jesus. He's saying, you can't say that. This is not what the Messiah does. He brings victory. He doesn't bring defeat. And so what does Jesus say to him? And Jesus' response here really is famous. He says there in verse 33, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Satan is the Bible's name for the one who has power over evil forces in the world that work against God's kingdom. Is Jesus calling Peter Satan? Well, no. Peter is one of his closest friends. Peter will see Jesus rise from the dead. Peter will become a leader in the early church. But what he is saying here is that Peter is doing and saying things that stand against God's kingdom. That this is what the power of evil wants. It wants to stand in the way and say, no, Jesus, don't go to the cross. Don't suffer. Don't die. Don't experience defeat. Why? Because that's the path to victory. It's not the path of upward mobility. It's the path of downward mobility. And so Peter may not really even know it, but he is standing in the way of that victory. Which brings to mind for me the the famous picture of a guy named George Wallace, the then governor of Alabama in 1963. And you've probably seen this picture. And he's standing in the doorway of the auditorium into the University of Alabama. It was during the period of Jim Crow segregation. And he is blocking two black students from getting into the university. He's blocking integration. Standing in the way of good and necessary change and advancement. And justice, this is like the picture that Jesus is, is giving us. Peter may not know it, but he is standing in the way of God's kingdom of justice and righteousness. The way things are meant to be. And he's doing this by embracing upward mobility. Upward mobility, it leads us to stand not with, but in the way of God's kingdom. Upward mobility, it tells us that the people that you need to connect yourself with are the people who have something to offer you. The people who have more followers, who have more influence, who can show you a good time on the town. 
But God's kingdom identifies itself in a particular way with the forgotten people. The people who by appearances have little to offer you. You, as much as we may grate against this, you can't separate God's kingdom from the cross. You can't separate Jesus from loss. Jesus is inviting us to a path of downward mobility because this is who he is. This is where he leads. So any kind of health and wealth gospel that says, if you follow God, then he will give you what you want. He will give you money or he will make your plans come to fruition. This doesn't fit with the gospel that Jesus is proclaiming. That this health and wealth gospel really is what Christians call heresy. It's a false teaching. We so badly want Jesus to lead us toward more comfort. Even if we're comfortable with the idea that there's sacrifice now at this point in my life, eventually, you know, I'll have one kind of job and then I'll have a better job. Or, you know, eventually I'll have more authority Maybe I'm a college student now and there are a lot of people in positions of authority over me, but eventually I can reverse that. But where God's kingdom leads us is toward sacrifice, toward giving more and more of ourselves, more humility. And as a note, this isn't a call to self-degradation. I mean, I would argue that Christianity gives us the best reasons for self-care and acknowledging our limits because you're made in the image of God and he delights in your humanity. But any kind of real love involves sacrifice. We so badly want more comfort, but Jesus is inviting us toward more sacrifice. I mean, we so badly want Jesus to invite us to a life where, you know, I have this vision of myself in the future where, okay, I, I'm a little bit dissatisfied with where I'm right now, but eventually I'll find this Rob out there who has, you know, he has a blog that have, a lot of people are following, you know, and somehow in the future I have more hair and like my hair is like as thick as it was when I was 18. I so badly want to think that there is this version of myself that if I just work hard enough, I can actualize this version. But Jesus is saying, no, my kingdom leads you to more and more loss. To lose this vision you have of yourself. Because that's where he's leading. I mean, mean, if we left it right there, that might sound like really bad news. But this leads us to the third question. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Jesus, he doesn't want to shame Peter here. I need to make that clear. But he does want him and the crowds to understand more of what it really involves to follow him. So in verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is a very strange message for a king to give his people. Uh, Last night, the Lakers, who were in the finals, were playing the Miami Heat. And before the game, I read that LeBron James from the Lakers, he sent this message in their their group chat to all the players, and all it said was, must win. Which is kind of a 
lame prep to, or pep talk, you know. But it seemed to work because they won the game. But imagine if LeBron had sent the team a message that just said, must lose. It would make very little sense. But this is the message that Jesus is giving to his team or his followers here. And what he commands is based on a principle of just what's true. And it's vital for us to understand. Jesus isn't being silly here when he tells them, if you want to come after me, take up your cross and follow me to a place of dying and loss. He's not being nonsensical. He's basing this on a principle of just the way the world really works. Look there in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. He's saying that this is just the way things are. This is the way I've made the world. If you want to win, you must lose. But he also, he commands this because he cares for us. He's inviting us toward what is truly good for us, beneficial for us, what will lead to more fullness, wholeness, satisfaction. Look at 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Talking about soul seems so kind of like out there religious talk. And Jesus seems to be saying that if you want to benefit your soul or the deepest part of who you are, you must lose. Well, what would it even mean to lose our souls? What is Jesus talking about here? There's an old, old, old Simpsons episode I really like called Bart Sells His Soul. And in the episode, Bart is kind of like talking with his friend about their souls. And Bart basically says, you know, it's silly to believe that we have souls. And his friend Milhouse says, oh, yeah, if you're so sure about that, why don't you just sell me your soul? And so Bart writes on a paper, Bart's soul, and he sells it to Milhouse for $5. And what happens in the episode, he starts to, weird things happen to him where he walks up to automatic doors and they don't part from him. He just keeps walking into them. And I mean, it's kind of playing on this idea that if you were to lose your soul, that you would shrivel. You'd become less of who you are. But Jesus isn't saying that to lose your soul, you have to, you know, make some kind of transaction and hand it away. It's something simply scarier than that. That what it means to forfeit our souls when we put even the best stuff in the world above God's kingdom. That's when piece by piece we forfeit our souls. That we give away or we, we neglect what God is offering us, what is best for us, even when we put the best things in this world above God's kingdom, above Jesus's rule in our lives. This is what it means to forfeit our souls. We gain our life, though. We find fullness. We win what is best when we lose ourselves. This is what it means to find fullness. That when I, when I submit my plans to God's plan in my life, when I say what it means, what my future has to look like, it, doesn't necessarily have to look like me finding the right grad school, but it got, it's where you take me, what doors you open up. It doesn't have to be me finding this best version of life, 
What you lose is the guarantee of getting into that grad school that you want or the guarantee that your life, your future will look exactly the way that you want it to. But what you gain is the freedom of knowing that wherever, whatever your future looks like, you are secure because you are in God's kingdom by his grace. That when we stop looking for the perfect version of relationships or looking for a friend group that's going to perfectly satisfy my needs, what you lose, again, is a vision for relationships that maybe you're holding on to dearly, but what you gain is the ability to begin to experience God's love in community with other people. Which means starting at the place of saying, I love you not because of what you give me, but because I love you. When you give over this version of yourself that, that I so desperately think that I need, that version of me with a blog and really nice hair, what I lose is this, this prospect of fame and influence and power that I think that's really going to satisfy me, that's going to make my life worthwhile. But what I gain is the freedom of moving closer and closer to the one who created me, who knows me, who loves me, who delights in me, and doesn't demand any version of yourself in the future beyond what he created you to be. And that is so utterly freeing. But talking about any of this, I imagine, and I've talked with with many people who have said, this idea that Jesus talks about here, it just sounds really frightening because it's, he's inviting me to give over all of myself, to lose myself, but then will I really, what will I be in, in the end? It seems like what's going to happen to me is sort of like what happens at the end of Infinity War. I just kind of turn into dust. And then where's the guarantee that God will be there to scoop me up, to scoop up the pieces? And this should draw our eyes back to Jesus, who gave himself entirely over to the will of his Father and endured the power of death for our sake because of it. And because he did that, he is raised victorious with fullness and wholeness and all the satisfaction in the world to give his people. And Jesus is inviting us to give ourselves over to him, but not to endure the power of death, but through dying and losing to embrace the power of his life that he wants to give us. This is who Jesus is, and this is what he wants to give you. Come to him, lose to gain everything. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the gospel, which tells us that you are better than anything this world offers us. Lord, also thank you for the gospel that tells us that we who so often seek to replace you with the stuff of this world, with the path of upward mobility, that you are completely patient with us and gracious toward us. So that uh, you offer us complete forgiveness and new life. Lord, I pray that we would come to you and find that now.